From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today we're joined by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha and Dr. Karen Johnson Webb. Dr. Hannah Atisha is a pediatrician whose press conference and testimony before Congress alerted the public about the Flint, Michigan water crisis. She's the author of BGSU's 2019-2020 Common Read, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Dr. Johnson Webb is an associate professor of geography at BGSU. Her research includes racial disparities in health. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. um, Mona, you played an important role in alerting the public about the Flint water crisis and advocating for the city's residents. Can you begin uh, to just tell our audience how you began practicing medicine in Flint and how that led into your involvement in the water crisis? Yeah, so I first got a flavor of medicine in Flint as a medical student. So I went to Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine, and it's actually the first community-based medical school. So the medical school was founded to really kind of serve the rest of the state, and Flint was one of its original campuses. So as a medical student over 20-plus years ago, I was in Flint for my clinical training, and that's where I really fell in love with the city, and I fell in love with the discipline of pediatrics. Uh, I then went to Detroit for about 10-plus years uh, to do my residency, at the Children's Hospital in Michigan. And then in 2011, I had this amazing opportunity to come back to Flint um, to give back to the city that really gave me so much um, and to serve as their pediatric residency director, which means I got to oversee the training of future pediatricians. How did you first learn about the possibility of elevated lead levels in Flint's water supply? Yeah, so I learned about the issue of lead kind of late in the story. So in April of 2014, Flint changed their water source um, from the Great Lakes, which we had been getting for over half a century, to the Flint River. And this was done while we were under kind of state-appointed emergency management, and it was all about saving money. Um, So that happened in April of 2014, and there was kind of concerns from the very beginning about things like color and odor and taste and bacteria. And throughout this time, all the people in power said everything was okay. So I I was telling my patients for about a year and a half um, when they came in with concerns about the water that everything was okay because all these really important scientists were saying everything was okay. Um, But that all changed when I heard about the possibility of lead in the water. And that happened in the summer of 2015 and um, not in clinic, not in kind of, you know, my my office, not the hospital, but actually in my kitchen at home at a barbecue with a high school girlfriend who of all things happened to be a drinking water expert. Um, And at that time, she alerted me um, to the possibility that, hey, you know, the water's not being treated properly. And because of that, there would be lead in the water. I think this is one of the important parts of your story is that you were uniquely qualified to do something, but you learned about this through a matter of just your social network, right? Just your human connections to neighbors and friends. And I think that's something, uh, you know, we'll talk more about, but the ways in which being an actor making change is not necessarily because you 
planned to, but because you're the right person at the right time in a particular place. Absolutely. Right person, right time, right place, right team, um, right training, right, right background and experiences that prepare you for these moments which you can never plan for. Karen, your background is in geography. Can you tell us about how you came to focus specifically on black infant mortality and maternal health and how these fit into geography? Well, um, I'm probably one of the few people you'll meet with three degrees in geography. Most people sort of trip into geography, and I did as a um, as an undergrad. I'm also a, a, an alumna of Michigan State University. Go green. Department of <laughs> Geography. <laughs> and when I decided to do uh, my master's, um, Dr. John Hunter, an eminent, uh, very uh, famous medical geographer, uh, made his presentation to the grad students. All the faculty were um, sort of cycling through, and I said, that's what I want to do. And... Um, and I've always been interested in issues of race, racism, and how it impacts people's everyday lives. And when I moved, um, my family's from Michigan, uh, but I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and but came back to Michigan State um, to go to college. And um, when I came back after getting my Ph.D. and everything and started just trying to tool around for an idea um, of what to um, what to research locally, I found that I looked at a map of the United States mapped by state um, with infant mortality, and you expect to see high rates in the South, but I didn't expect to see Michigan and Ohio pop out like uh, Mississippi and Alabama, and that was very curious to me. And then another coincidence, um, during winter vacation one year, I read a little blurb in the Toledo Blade that said that the uh, public health department had gotten a grant to study lead, I'm, I'm not lead, to study black infant mortality. And um, so I called the guy, I just called him and I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a health geographer. I'd really like to, you know, add my expertise to this committee. And that's how it started. I started working with Lucas, Lucas County Public Health. The Ohio Equity Institute, OEI, was um, part of the grant. And um, there, the disparity, the gap between black and white infant mortality is, it, it's phenomenal. And especially in Lucas County for a couple of years, it was really wide. Like, it was 14 infant deaths per thousand births, live births, for blacks, dead infants, 14 dead infants, compared to 0.1 per thousand for whites. And there's no way to explain that by just look controlling for education, income, mom's visits, is mom smoking, et cetera, et cetera. And so now scholars are starting to look at um, toxic stress on the mom's body, and not just stress experienced in her lifetime. We're talking about stress that's passed down generation to generation. So that's sort of the long version. Can you say a little more about that, Karen, and how kind of toxic stress is related to environmental racism and structural racism more generally? How do we, how do we understand 
the role of racism in the physical health of families and communities over generations? Structural racism, as opposed to individual racism, which most people, most everyday people would think racism is about, I don't like you because you're black, I don't like you because you're Asian, etc. That's individual, where feelings are involved, perhaps. Structural racism has to do with um, structures and systems that were put in place intentionally over hundreds of years in this country that were designed to subjugate black people, to rob them of their wealth or their ability to gain wealth um, through many th- education, uh, jobs, um, what have you. And these systems continue. Not only do you have a, um, a situation where you have families who have not been able to provide wealth to f- their future generations, but these systems continue to persist. And it's it may be intentional, but it may be unintentional, like the, the school system, the public school systems. I don't think there are teachers or administrators who are there to subjugate black children. However, you there we're all placed in a situation where because of um, the way the housing market was structured by policies of the U.S. government, you have poor black people pooled together in cities. You had massive, massive white flight, which was subsidized by the U.S. government. And uh, and you've got children that are attending subset, substandard schools because of the way that the taxation system is set up, none of which is their fault. And uh, so those are the types of things that, that you have policies that have the effect, perhaps not the intent, but the effect of poor education outcomes, poor health outcomes, poor political outcomes, poor environmental outcomes, etc., well, and so those uh, policies that you're talking about in terms of um, land ownership, private property, right, have to do with um, who was eligible for mortgages, right, as a yes. result of um, changes in mid-century, um, about redlining and blockbusting That's that right. kept uh, those mortgages and that wealth contained in certain neighborhoods That's right. that only certain people were eligible to buy in, right? So that's what you're talking about there. and But this also has very material effects on health in -hmm. terms of uh, the quality of the land that is available, right? Historically, we think about um, valuable land, um, you know, versus bottom land Mm -hmm. um, and how the landscapes that we live in are highly racialized as well, right? Which property was kind of already toxic in some ways that, oh, that is available to be sold cheaply uh, to people of color, whereas the more valuable property uh, is redlined only for white owners. How does that work in Flint in particular, yeah, so Mona? That's, that's absolutely part of Flint's history, and it's part of the history of so many of our urban communities. This is this is not unique to Flint. This happened throughout our nation. Um, there's a whole chapter of my book really dedicated to that history and how really recognizing and digging down into that history helps us understand 
why the crisis happened and where we are today. Uh, there's a lot of history in, in the Flint story because um, if we fail to, to look back and recognize the history, it's, it's impossible for us to move forward. Um, so Flint, that's what Flint Histories was all about. So Flint had this you know huge period of prosperity. Lots of folks came um, for automotive jobs. The birth of General Motors was in Flint. Uh, people came for living wages and great jobs and great infrastructure and great schools. And there was quite a bit of prosperity African-Americans in the Great Migration North, they came to Flint because it was better than the conditions in the Jim Crow South, but it was still not equal conditions. Um, and then after that, uh, through policy decisions and man-made decisions, uh, there was disinvestment. Uh, plants closed. Jobs were lost. People who had the power and the privilege to leave the city left the city. And what was left was, was you know, poverty and, you know, things like violence became epidemic and all these significant disparities that directly impact the health of, of the people in the city. Um, so these were all man-made policy decisions that can be traced back um, to these, you know, uh, you know, examples of structural racism. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of backlash and criticism you got for whistleblowing. Yeah, so you know, one of the reasons I went into pediatrics and went into public health is because part of that profession is being an advocate. That's why I was drawn to that profession to be able to use my voice to help elevate um, the children's voices and to, to elevate the, you know, what they need to be healthy and successful. Uh, so, you know, throughout this whole process, I have been and continue to be very much doing my job as a pediatrician. Uh, so when the opportunity came to, to share our research findings uh, that were, was not unexpected, you know, there was more blood, more lead in the blood of Flint kids. We, you know, I never should have had to do that research. We, we should have known, you know, just by what was in the water that, you know, this should have been a hard stop. Uh, so when that research uh, was clear, that science was clear, uh, there was no other option than, than sharing that data um, and as quickly as possible. So in for us academics, we usually go through something called the peer review process where we publish our data and present at conferences. That takes a really long time. Um, and our kids really didn't have another day. So I, I literally walked out of my clinic with my white coat on and I stood up at a press conference to share these findings. And I felt great. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm protecting kids. I'm being an advocate because that's what a, being a pediatrician is all about. Um, so I felt good for like a half an hour. Um, and then uh, the state and, and really every arm of the state uh, said I was wrong. Um, they said that I was splicing and dicing numbers, that I was an unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria, which is also quite sexist. Uh, so, and I was preparing myself for a backlash because everybody who had raised their voices in the story had been denied and dismissed. The moms, the activists, the pastors, the journalists, the water experts, everybody had had been silenced and you know attacked. So I was prepared for trying to prepare myself, but but nothing can really prepare you um, for that personal backlash. And you know I felt sick. Um, my heart rate went up. Like I wanted to throw up. Like my hands were shaking. Uh, part of me said to myself, like, maybe I, I made a mistake. I began to second guess myself. Like, like, maybe I shouldn't have gotten involved. Maybe I should have just gone about my busy job as a mom, pediatrician, professor. Like, why did I get involved in this? Um, and that lasted a short period. I um, mean, it was the quick recognition that, you know, they could 
go after me all they want because this had nothing to do with me, um, but everything to do with the children, the children of Flint who I'm privileged to serve. So it was as if those kids just kind of, you know, lifted me up and, and, and helped me fight back. And, and at that time, a growing team was kind of around me and, and the media started paying attention. And I, there are a couple of things there worth spending some more time on. One is the role of journalism, right? We're in a time where we tend to think of there's a lot of criticism of the media. Um, and yet both of you are talking about the ways in which journalism has been absolutely essential in keeping democratic processes working. Um, so Karen, can you talk a little bit about um, back to how you first learned about um, infant and maternal mortality rates in Toledo, um, what have you seen as the role in the media in kind of keeping the spotlight on some of the inequalities happening locally and around the country? Well, I've seen some fair reporting in terms of um, quoting um, the, it's, it's called the Toledo Lucas County Public Health Department. And a lot of the efforts uh, to fight black infant mortality have been centered on uh, safe baby sleeping, which about 12% of infant deaths are due to safe, unsafe baby sleeping. So there's this huge gap or this, this, this huge proportion of deaths that are more related to low birth weight births and prematurity. And that's where the uh, in terms of my own research, where looking at stress, um, that that is per, basically day-to-day stress that people are living under uh, because of where they live, because of where they were born, because of what family they were born into. And um, in in Toledo, they people are talking about social determinants of health, but I. It's, it's very hard to get at, especially if you're un, under public funding and you want a study that's going to be crisp and clear with numbers. Um, that's, it's very difficult um, to, to uh, get a report out uh, that, that might be easy for people to consume. And so um, consequently, most of the, the focus has been on the safe baby sleeping and what the mothers can do better, which, which could also be uh, mom blaming. Mm-hmm. Blame the victim. Yeah, We've blame the before. victim mm-hmm. for uh, whatever she's doing, smoking, being mm-hmm. obese. Or, or getting um, lead poisoning. You didn't wash his hands enough. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, so, but there are so many good people that are working hard to drive these these um, rates down and are trying new things. And my own research, where I I um, did qu- qualitative interviews, long conversations with Black women who are residents of Lucas County uh, about their life. I, it was basically a conversation, and. Um, I heard Dr. Mona talk yesterday about ACEs, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences, mm-hmm. and this is also another buzzword mm-hmm. along with social determinants of health, but it's a very serious um, consequence of structural racism for black children. And explain for our listeners what, what kinds of events are ACEs. 
Well, that's very interesting because I, I was sitting in a, um, a dissertation proposal defense and the student listed some, had a slide, a PowerPoint slide, and, and divorce was there. And my parents were divorced, but I never, I wouldn't have called it an adverse childhood experience, but it was. But there were also things like um, malnutrition, abuse, seeing someone murdered, yeah, abuse, neglect, knowing someone who's been murdered, mm-hmm. um, treatment by the police, um, poor schools, uh, things that go on in school because you you don't know or you haven't been treated for whatever it is that's that's keeping you from performing, and. Um, uh, also, they could be trauma. It, what it is is trauma, traumatic mm-hmm. experiences. And you could be experiencing traumatic experiences in your own family. And um, we can look at some of those things of how, how are people coping with their stress? Maybe not in the best way. Um, and what we find, right, is that um, children exposed to multiple, multiple stressors like this, right, it ultimately has an effect on brain development and biochemistry that can lead to these longer-term health effects like perhaps high blood pressure or other things. Chronic diseases and decreased mortality. Uh, It's been shown to be very graded and predictable. The Mm -hmm. more and more of these early adversities you have, really in this critical window of early childhood, in a very graded and predictable way, you'll have more kind of risk-taking behaviors, more chronic diseases, um, and actually decreased life expectancy. And one of the things that what both of your work really shows is um, that the way we think about race, racism, and um, social policy is completely backwards in this country, that we focus on the consequences of these systemic issues, Mm -hmm. right? We focus on the single child who's a behavioral problem. Mm -hmm. We focus on the individual house that has lead paint, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than recognizing that the reason there's a higher rate of incarceration or a higher rate of um, untreated mental illness is actually goes way back to these systemic um, very these well childhood could. stressors that may have affected brain development and health. That's right. It's looking upstream. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a pediatrician, I can, I can Band-Aid kids that come in with uh, gunshot injuries, and we do. Um, but it's asking those questions like, why is this happening? Like, why do we have this inaction on policies that are preventing children from getting hurt. So it's it's taking, it's being more curious, it's asking those bigger questions of, of why and looking at what's happening at the systemic policy level. And once we sort of know the why, you know, one of the things that I think both of you are really interested in is what is, how do you then tell the story that explains for people the connections and convinces them of what the policy solutions should be. So for me, that's very much related to uh, the relationship between data, the kind of quantitative, mm-hmm. and narrative, stories, right? Yes. So Dr. Mona, your book is very much about combining these. Can you talk about how you think about the relationship between the quantitative data and the quant- qualitative stories Absolutely. of individual patients? Yeah, that is a great question. And it's so critical to to influence these policies. We have to be equipped with all these different tools of communi- communication and persuasion to share what we want to share. Um, so in my press conference that I had, I had graphs 
graphs and I had data and I had p-values and I had statistics, everything that you're supposed to have as a researcher. But I also had a story and I had a picture of a child and I held up a baby bottle filled with Flint water um, because I knew that if I was going to move some people, some folks aren't going to be moved by the data and the science, but some folks will be moved by me telling you the story of a little girl who was using Flint water to mix her powdered formula, who was waking up at night and her mom was getting warm water from a tap that hadn't been flush and she was filling her bottle and that's all she was consuming for the six, first six months of her life. Uh, so we have to be able to navigate both worlds um, to share a narrative and to, to influence decision makers. Dr. Mona did such a fantastic job of telling a story and, and stories resonate with people. And that's what I hope to do with my research uh, because peop many people are very resistant to, to hearing about racism, thinking about racism, especially if they can't see it or they've never experienced it or they don't know how it's manifesting. Things that people go through, things that people are experiencing, children are experiencing in their everyday lives, will resonate. Um, we've seen it over and over again with things, um, the events at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. When children, when we started talking about children, people got outraged. There's something quite different from the abstract to the concrete, right? That's right. The it's stories easy when matter. You, right. It's easy when you're focusing on numbers to forget that each number is attached mm -hmm. to a real person mm -hmm. with people who love them, with hopes, with dreams, ambitions. That's right. Right. And and what we and part of what you're both talking about is good research uses all the tools available. That's right. Not only to do the research, but to communicate it. That's right? exactly right. Um, that we need to collect good, rigorous data, right. right? We need to use proper protocols and ethical standards and Absolutely. all of that. Um, but we also need to be able to share that information in a way that connects with people because otherwise um, we can't make the policy imp yeah. impacts. Yeah, you got to... Exactly right. And I had the privilege of being involved in the March for Science. And one of the reasons I got involved was really to push my fellow academics, my mm -hmm. fellow scientists, my fellow researchers, my fellow doctors that, hey, you're doing great work, and you're, but you're publishing in journals that nobody reads. Like, that's okay. You need that for, like, you know, promotion and tenure and all these other things we have to do. But if we want to, for example, influence what people think about vaccines or about the climate crisis, we need to get out of our cozy ivory towers and step into the often uncomfortable spaces of, for example, capital buildings or, or you know, media places That's and right. share that science. We need to do a better job communicating the value of our work. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. Consider the following. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha and Dr. Karen Johnson-Webb about environmental racism and the Flint water crisis. Dr. Mona, what role do economic decisions make in these cases of environmental catastrophe? Can you talk us through some of the financial decisions that were made that led to this crisis in Flint? 
Yeah, you know, people often ask me, like, who are the villains in this story? Um, and they want me to name people. And I, you know, I, I share, you know, the, the real villains are these concepts of, for example, austerity. Um, and that, you know, we should, like, minimize taxes and tax on big government, all these different things. Um, and, and what happened in Flint was driven by this ideology of austerity, which means to save money. It was all about saving money, saving money, saving money. Because of Flint's history, because of that loss, that tax because of these kind of structural racist decisions, um, the city was unable to support its infrastructure, not only its water infrastructure, but its policing and public health and all these other really critical things, because bizarrely, we base those things on tax bases. Uh, and that led Flint to be in this near bankruptcy state. Um, so because of that economic state, the, um, the government took over. The state came in, appointed a financial emergency manager to balance the books and to, to cut costs. And that's how the decision was made, uh, because they thought we would save money. Uh, if we stopped getting water from the Great Lakes, it, it now evidently had become too expensive for this predominantly poor minority near bankrupt city. And to save a few bucks, uh, we transitioned to the Flint River without proper t- treatment. And remind us what the consequences of that are in financial terms now. Probably in the billions. Um, so there's probably been at least a billion dollars in aid that has come into Flint from the pipe replacements, to the uh, National Guard, to the water delivery, to the filters, to expanded Medicaid, to early intervention services, school health, nutrition programming, literacy support. I mean, the list goes uh, on and on of the resources that are not even enough yet, because this is a long-term issue that has happened um, that as a result of this kind of cost-saving move. Yeah. Do you see similar things at work in terms of our local region in terms of short-term thinking that has much longer-term costs? Absolutely. In uh, Toledo, it's widely known, published in the local paper, that uh, we have a lead, a lead problem in um, old housing stock. Old housing stock that's situated in the inner city is mostly rental prob- property, and children who are on Medicaid get tested for lead. However, children that are not don't, and there's there hasn't been a a, a real push to get them uh, tested. And um, the Toledo City Council did um, pass a an ordinance to clean it up, and the landlords went crazy and uh, said we can't afford this, and so it's just sort of been sitting. They, it was rescinded by a judge or, or something like that. Uh, I did read recently that the, the city council received a grant to start um, um, mitigation. It's not going to be uh, totally taken out of the houses, but it's going to be covered up. And it, it's been left to uh, the churches to try to organize teams of people to go in and clean those houses out. And um, so, yeah, uh, and it wasn't even a burden on the city. It was a burden on people who chose to be landlords. In my mind, if you choose to be a a landlord and something's wrong with your property, oh, well, you're supposed to fix that. So there's a long history of 
not taking action, of being very kind of short-sighted when it comes to lead. There's one of my favorite quotes from a scientist in 1969. He, When he was referring to lead poisoning, he said, the causes and cures are so well known that if we fail to take action, we deserve all the social crimes that will come with it. This is 1969. Uh, Post-Flint, there was a great report from um, Pew and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that looked at just the economics of lead. There's actually, there's actually folks called lead economists. Um, and they, uh, in this great report, it said that it, we would save our nation $80 billion a year if we eliminated lead, lead exposure in terms of increased economic productivity, decreased special education costs, decreased health care, behavioral health care costs, decreased criminal justice costs. So we actually even have the economic arguments, which you'd figure would move policymakers, but unfortunately those savings are not seen usually past the life expectancy and the term limits of, of those policymakers. Well, and that leads to this question, right, that we do know the economic costs. We do know the benefits, right, that would occur if we actually invested in some of these remediations now. Um, And what you're talking about is so much, um, then what do individual citizens do, right? So what can individual citizens, like our students, like our neighbors, what can be done to actually influence some of these policy decisions? What can be done in Toledo, Karen? Well, I, <laughs> I'm kind of a gadfly. I, I tweet, I write, I call my senators, I call my representatives. Um, it, I don't know how much good that does. It does a lot of good. Does so it? Karen is civically engaged. <laughs> Karen read a newspaper article and she called the person the article and she got involved in her community. So do what Karen is doing. You know, walking into this interview, we passed a voter registration table. That's awesome. So vote, 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 vote. Take, you know, five friends with you, you know, commit to doing that. So that's all part of, you know, being part of the political process and influencing policymakers. Hold them accountable. Yep. You voted them in, set up meetings with them. Ask them if they're going to fund these kinds of really critical preventative public health interventions. Uh, So there is a lot that people can do, especially young people. The movements that are happening right now are being led by young people. That's right. And, And they're on Facebook and they're on social media. And there's a way on Facebook you can you go through a process where you're just not somebody posting on your senator's page you are a consi- you're, you're constituent because you've given your zip mm. code or something like that so and they're notorious for I mean they have to pay attention to their constituents especially if there are enough of them and I think that's one of the things that's so important here that like Mona you are a national figure now but you were involved in local politics right this was a local issue and Karen you're talking about the local city council, right? Mm-hmm. These are things that you don't have to go to Washington no. D.C. Right. You, it no. may be down the street. Literally it may be yep. right. It may be in your neighborhood. Yep. And that's the lesson of this book and my story is that there are injustices everywhere. You just have to open your eyes to them. But it's not enough to be awake. You have to take action, mm-hmm. even if it's hard or scary. Even if your heart rate goes up and your stomach hurts, um, you have to do it. You can't stay silent and, and close your eyes to these issues. And I think it's also important to know that uh, you don't have to feel like you're an expert in all of it to be able to do something about it, right? right? Absolutely. And then the really awesome thing, which is also part of my story, is find friends. Make friends with people who are different than you. Like. 
drinking water friends from high school um, and environmental engineers and geographers and people from all these different disciplines. So you don't have to be that expert, but, but find all kinds of different friends and then your work is so much more powerful. Mona and Karen, we have some students in the studio who'd like to ask you some questions. I'm Haley Kurtz, a first year student at Bowling Green State University. And my question for Dr. Mona is, what can this generation of future doctors, leaders, and educators do with the lessons and values in your book to help make our lives and the lives after us better? Haley, that is an awesome question. Thank you. There is so much that you can do. And I think one of the biggest lessons of this story in this book is the recognition that you have power. You are a powerful person and you can make a huge difference. So I think what I would like you to take home is is having that kind of self-esteem and that self-efficacy that I can make a difference. When I was in high school, when I was in college, when I was in medical school, people kept telling me, you can change the world. And I believed them, like I really believed them that I could change the world. But throughout that training, I also garnered a lot of critical skills and tools in communication and research and science and advocacy to, to enable me to change the world. So all Always believe in yourself and always believe that you have the power to change the world because you can and, and we're, we're going to be watching you. I'm Ezra Wilder, another first year. And my question for Dr. Mona is how do we as educators and social workers better advocate for the kids that and the communities that we hope to work with? That is an awesome question. So how do we be better advocates? And I think I would share kind of what I shared earlier is uh, do it with friends. Uh, find your village. Uh, so often when we, we are advocating for something or we're fighting for something, we feel like the weight of the world is only on our shoulders, that nobody else cares about what we care about. And what I learned through this whole process, like, oh my God, other people also care about kids. And people that I didn't even think cared about kids, kids like water engineers cared about kids. Like, who knew? That's awesome. Geographers cared about kids. So find those, those folks because when you are feeling down, they will help lift you up. You want to have people who have your back and you want to be part of a larger team, a movement. Um, this story is, is so much of a story um, of of the power of, of individuals coming together and making a difference. Do you want to add anything about working with, advice for working with marginalized populations? Well, that, I have, I have found that to be very important. I went and I joined that group. Uh, the, um, it, it, it's changed names. It's now called Getting to One, and I, I haven't been back to it since um, school started. Um, but yes, and and hearing stories and hearing what it was from the the ground level of what really needed to be addressed, uh, there's nothing that substitutes for that. Um, you the the numbers represent people and their experiences and what they are experiencing, and in order to to help them, you have to find out what exactly they need help with and how you can uh, intervene on that. Yeah. yeah, I think what you're pointing out, and you know, you're working with qualitative data 
right? You're talking to people, right? It's not standing for people. It's listening to them, learning from them rather than thinking you're the expert coming in. That's exactly right. And solving it. I think that's important. Jolie, I I completely agree with both of you. This is all about partnerships. This is all about working together. This is about us as academics and doctors and professionals stepping off our pedestals and working humbly shoulder to shoulder with impacted communities. Mona and Karen, on behalf of ICS and BGSU, thanks so much for talking with me today. We really enjoyed hearing more about your research um, and your work. Uh, For those in the audience, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Hannah Atisha and the Flint water crisis, please read What the Eyes Don't See um, or listen to the audiobook read by Dr. Mona herself. (laughs) Our producers for this podcast are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza. Audio engineering is by Jacob Seidel. Research assistance for this podcast was provided by ICS intern Emma Valandingham. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Colleen Center at Bowling Green State University.